put the sermon screen up? Thank you. All right. It's a certain end, and uh, we're going to be talking about the coming of the Lord and things we have to look forward to. So like every generation of believers before us, we may be tempted at times to see the rampant evil in our world and wonder if God is ever going to close the chapter on this time and if the day of the Lord will ever come. The early church sometimes wondered too. In chapter 1 of Peter's second letter, he urges believers to confirm their calling and election. In other words, to grow in the faith. He lists qualities that should be increasing in the believers' lives. And this would keep them from being ineffectual. But believers who practice the good qualities that Peter writes about will never fail, he says. So he tells them he intends to constantly remind them of these qualities. Again and again, Peter talks about knowing or knowledge. You need to know these qualities. And he seems to be working hard so that when he passes away, and he's not there to teach them anymore, he wants them to be able to recall his teachings. In other words, Peter believes in the power of repetition or the necessity of repetition. We need to constantly be remembering, learning, and relearning the truths of Scripture and diligently working to apply these in our lives. Peter also in chapter 1 points out that Jesus' ministry had eyewitnesses and that he is one of them. And then he points out in verse 21 that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he's telling us something about how prophecy works. And then in chapter 2, Peter goes after false prophets and teachers in what one writer said is probably the strongest polemic found in Scripture. Peter rips into the false teachers. He says there were false prophets in Old Testament times, and there will be false teachers among you. Peter warns Jesus, uh, warns along with Jesus and with other writers of Scripture, including Paul, uh, that many times we see the warning that false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, would be in the church. Constant diligence and vigilance are needed. We should be watching out for false teaching, warning both false teachers and their followers that might be falling for their lies. The number one way to do that is to be in the Word of God ourselves and know it so well that when a false teacher does pop up, and they certainly will, we will be able to have the discernment we need to avoid them and to avoid falling into the trap of false beliefs. And Peter very strongly comes after these false teachers who are blasphemers, those who are after sensuality and are insatiable for sin. They, they are greedy. They're accursed. They have gone the way of Balaam. They are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. They turn from the path of righteousness and are therefore worse off than if they had never known it. And so Peter gives this blistering rebuke and after that, uh, after warning the false teachers and warning about false teacher, one writer said he was greatly comforted to arrive in chapter 3, where our study begins this morning because Peter's tone changes, and he uses the word beloved. And I will read through chapter 3, and then we will get back to see 
about that big idea in our main points. 2 Peter 3 says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Looks like Peter was a creationist. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about Noah's flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, which of the heaven, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. The, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. All right, so the big idea is pretty simple. The day of the Lord will come. Hopefully you can remember that when you leave today. The day of the Lord will come. And four things that believers need to do. Believers need to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. They need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. They need to not be carried away by error. And they need to grow in grace and knowledge. So Peter begins with addressing the church as beloved. This is a very close term, one reserved for the most intimate relationships. In the church, we find ourselves knitted together in Christ and our bonds then should reflect a very closeness and love and care for one another. Peter wants to gently remind the church 
about the prophecies and the commandments of Jesus that have been taught and explained by the apostles. And this is because scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. These scoffers will mock Christians who hold to the truth that Jesus is returning, a day of judgment is coming, and a remade heaven and earth are in the works. Yet many will say, well, when is it going to happen? And how much more than they might say it today? It's been 2,000 years and more now. There are terrible things in the world. Why doesn't God just come and clean house right now? Why does he let sinners keep on sinning? Then they will say, nothing's changed. The world keeps proceeding on as if there is no God to answer to. So Peter shares a lesson here about God's eternal nature. And he says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Now, we don't want to take this in a very literal sense. Please don't do that. Paul's not saying that, that there's some perfect ratio where we can calculate God's time as an increment of our time. No, it's more than that. God is outside of time. He's the one who set our current timetable in motion. He's eternal, and we really have no concept with which we can understand what that means. All of us were born. We have had a certain number of days thus far. We will have a certain number of days after this morning. We cannot possibly understand what eternity or eternality is like where something existed before time began. So Peter's simply showing us that what may seem to us to be a long time, or perhaps we could say it's too long since all this has been going on, we need to understand that God is not worried like we are about the amount of time it's taking for the day of the Lord to come. What Peter says next shows us that there is a purpose in the long period of time from our perspective, and that is that God is working all things out in the timeline so that all of the elect will come to him. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Wait a minute, Peter. Are you saying you believe in universalism? Universalism is the belief that all people universally from all points of time and all places, all people will be saved. That's what universalism is. Is that what Paul is saying? Absolutely no. Remember that context is king. What is the context of this letter? What has Paul been writing up about up to this point, and who is he writing to? So Peter's writing to the church, and he's been writing about false teachings and false teachers. So when he says, the Lord is patient towards you, the you is the church. Certainly this letter might be read by unbelievers, but it was not addressed to unbelievers. Remember that important rule of Bible study that a passage cannot mean something different than what it meant to the original audience, in this case, the church that, Paul is, uh, that Peter is writing to. And we can see that in the very first verse of Second uh, Peter, who he's writing to. He writes, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith equal, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's writing to believers. So when he says that the Lord is patient towards you, who does he mean? Believers. 
truly saved people. Jesus said in Luke 18, 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And so it is this elect that God seems to delay over, yet we do not understand his timing. So we need to trust him that his timing will be just right. And when we get discouraged, when things seem really awful in this world, we need to remind ourselves that God is being patient with us. Peter has just written about false teachings in the church. So part of that patience is allowing people to come back to the truth. And certainly today there are many bad Uh, and false teachers. There's all kinds of heresies, all kinds of bad teachings, and God is being patient with us. I myself and many believers I have met will confess that we once believed some sort of error that we later discovered was wrong, and God graciously has allowed me the time to get some things right that I had wrong before. Now, he continues to do this refining work in me and in all who are determined to understand God and know him and know his ways. And and he continues, Peter continues and says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Jesus used many parables and metaphors, and this is where Peter probably got this idea that the day will come like a thief. Thieves use the element of surprise. We will be surprised when that time comes, but we can be ready. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the works done on earth will be exposed. There will be no secret sins left. They'll all be exposed. This should motivate us to live lives of holiness and godliness. We both wait and we hasten the day when we live righteously. Next, we see some pretty disturbing imagery, if it were the final act, that the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, heavenly bodies melting as they burn. But we don't need to be disturbed about this if we're in Christ, because the burning is a cleansing, and after this there will be new heavens and new earth, and this will be made with perfection, without the decay and death that we now see all around us. And this is according to his promise And God's promises will certainly be kept. And now we get to the last several verses, and these are where our main points come from. Again, the big idea is that the day of the Lord will come. And the four points that we had this morning are that believers need to be found, they need to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Not be carried away by error and grow in grace and knowledge. So first point there, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Paul wrote something similar to this in 1 Corinthians 15. At verse 58, Paul wrote, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When we see the word diligent, we usually mean someone who completes their job or makes sure to do things they're responsible to do. 
But the word here means a bit more than that. The word Peter used in his letter before it was translated into English for us meant something more like be zealous, be eager, hurry. It also means what we normally mean, that is to be earnest or make effort. But added to that is the idea to do it with zeal, a sense of urgency or even with speed. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In other words, be eager or zealous to be found this way. In other words, we need to be highly motivated to live holy and respectable lives. Next, we need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. When we get discouraged in our time, looking around and wondering why God lets so many people get by with so many blasphemies and sins, we would do well to remember that God is being patient and kind with us and allowing us to continue working out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, for Christ has done all that work, but we work out our salvation. That is, we continually apply our salvation to ourselves. And this lifelong process that we call sanctification whereby we grow to be more like Christ, it takes time. But not only that, we need to remember that just as we are being given grace to continue this sanctification, so others may be given more time to come for the first time to Christ. You see, if they are elect, they will certainly come, but until the day of the Lord comes, there are those who are elect that are His who we may just have an opportunity to be part of their coming to faith and becoming disciples. In fact, we should hope so. Isn't this the command we spoke of last week? And our big idea last week was that every believer should be actively involved in this enterprise we call evangelism. And we know not how many in our city are among the elect, so we must actively go out and present the gospel. We know not, but God knows, so he sends us. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Acts 18. Jesus spoke to Paul there about not giving up his evangelistic efforts, even in the face of opposition. He told Paul to go on speaking and not be silent, for I have many in this city who are my people. Jesus knew who his people were, but Paul didn't. Paul was to be obedient to preach to all who would listen, but Jesus knew who were his in that city. So we must also remember that there very very well may be people in our spheres of influence who are God's people, but they don't know it yet. And you don't either. So we pray and look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. In David Helms' Preaching the Word commentary, On the letters of Peter, he shares this great illustration, and I quote, Why hasn't Christ come? According to Peter, he wants us to dwell with him forever. His apparent slowness is our salvation. Entering into that relationship with God demands time, and for most of us, it takes a little bit more than one might at first think. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher of the mid-20th century, had a businessman in his congregation named William Thomas. Thomas was a salesman, a Welshman, who sold fish door to door. One day, several men at the local watering hole were drinking and talking. Suddenly, Thomas, who was also having a pint, found himself listening to their conversation at the table next to him. Yes, said one man to the other. I was there last Sunday night, and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. 
He said there was hope for everybody. Of the rest of the conversation, Thomas heard nothing. But arrested and completely sobered, he said to himself, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. I'm going to that chapel myself to see what that man says. That first Sunday, he walked to the open gate of the railings that fenced the church, stood for some minutes, and then his nerve failing him turned and went home. Throughout the wretched week, he waited for the next Sunday evening to arrive, and somehow he reached the chapel only to hear singing. Faced with the realization that he was late, he once more turned away and went home. The third Sunday evening came, and William Thomas was once again at the gate, wondering nervously what he should do when next when one of the members of the congregation welcomed him with the words, Are you coming in? Come and sit with me. That night, William Thomas passed from condemnation to life. He found, as Mrs. Lloyd-Jones tells us, that he could understand the things that were being said, and he believed the gospel, and his heart was flooded with a great peace. Old things had passed away. Old things had become new. Imagine what the end would have been like for William Thomas if the Lord had said after that first week, well, I think I'm done now. I'll return in judgment now. What would it be like for you? How many years have you silently wondered whether or not you should make a fresh start with God? Do you not see, do you not understand the delay in Christ's coming is not only because he is so unlike us, but because he is so patient with us, end quote. So believers need to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. They need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And our third point not be carried away by error. But before we get to that third point, I want to point out something that should be encouraging to all of us, since I doubt there's anyone among us here who hasn't at one time scratched their head trying to understand some facet of Scripture. I say this because Peter seems to admit that Paul's letters are hard to understand for him. In verses 15 and 16, he says, "...and count the patience of the Lord as salvation." Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So it's worth noting that Peter lumped Paul's writings in with other scriptures. This shows us that already, very early in the church, it was understood that the writings we call the New Testament carried with them apostolic authority. So that's something to help you remember that. Second Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You can read chapter 2 on your own later. Clearly, this was a concern for Peter. That error was in the church, and people were being swayed to believe the wrong things. So once again, he tells them not to be carried away by their error. And how do we avoid error? I know you hear me harping on this again and again, but it's so fundamental to your success as a follower of Jesus, it bears repeating again and again. You must be in God's word daily. And be careful that you do not think that you've learned enough to stand without further teaching or study. Because Paul also warns, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We have a tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. 
We tend to congratulate ourselves on what we know. We tend to compare ourselves not to the perfection we're called to, but to one another. While we see each other's faults and miss major problems of our own, if we ever took the time for self-reflection. So in order not to be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose our own stability, we must be very intentional, very committed to maturing in our faith, to being wiser today than we were yesterday, to not let the lessons of grace miss us. You see, we are constantly and throughout our lives being given graceful reminders of our own need for God. If we think we stand, we must take heed lest we fall. And finally, Peter closes his letter with a beautiful exhortation to believers in verse 18. Grow, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter finishes his letter with a positive encouragement to us. Don't be carried away with error and lose your stability. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in his grace, that grace that brings us to the place of humility that always wants to look up to him, makes us dependent on him and not ourselves, for this is the best way to stay out of trouble and grow in knowledge. Many people have deceived themselves into believing that they have all the knowledge they need already. Some Christians say really silly things like, if you study your Bible too much, you're making an idol of it. I've literally heard that from pulpits before. Well, the possibility exists for a person to be puffed up by knowledge. We know that. The proper correction is certainly not to be biblically illiterate people. If someone thinks they have acquired all the knowledge they will ever need, if someone always wants to teach but is never the student, they may very well be that puffed up person that we're warned not to be. But if the solution to puffed up people or teachers is to forbid being a student uh, or learning, then we've gone way off course. And this is why Peter pairs grace with knowledge. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus said we are to be perfect, which is at this time for us an aspiration. Because we know we're not perfect. It's not possible for us to be perfect while we're in the flesh still. But if we are to strive to be perfect, wouldn't this include being perfect in knowledge? Yet many Christians say they cannot find the time to study deeply into the things of God. So they rely on a paragraph from a devotional book or in a sermon once a week. Some of the very pious listen to Christian, uh, something Christian during the week, maybe on the radio or something. But they never themselves dive into scripture. Yet compared to many, the one who does a paragraph a day is way ahead because many people do not read their Bibles during the week between church services at all. Yesterday, I saw some information on some research into the effects of reading a Bible four times a week. It's amazing. This is based on a scientific study. But we don't need scientific studies to confirm what we already should believe about God's Word. But some of you are helped by things like this. And I read from our article, and this is on the LifeWay website, that they studied the effects of reading Scripture one day per week, two days, three days, and four days. At three days, there started to show some measurable results, but at four days, it was simply amazing. Here's what the article says. A steady climb of impact would have been expected, but that was not the case. The level was basically stagnant over days one and two with a small bump on day three. But when day four was reached, that is reading four days a week, 
from the Bible, the effects spiked in an astounding way. The stunning findings included the following. This, again, this is people who read the Bible at least four times a week. Feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. Discipling others jumps 230%. The research literally leaps off the charts. I'm still reading from the article. The findings hammer home the truth that there are profound differences between people who engage the scriptures at least four times a week and those who engage with scriptures less often. And I say every day, I still stick with that. This data is extremely revealing. There is a full-blown effort to keep the followers of Christ from consistently reading the Bible on a daily basis. Integral to these findings is that people who engage the Bible one to three days a week indicate basically the same effect on their personal lives as those who do not engage at all. The deceptive reality is that they can feel good about their activities without any sustainable results. They think they're being good Christians, but their lives are no different than people who aren't Christians at all. This can be devastating to a movement. Limited activity is, is elevated to the same effect as a cons, uh, consistent... Sorry, I'm going to start over that sentence. Limited activity is elevated to the same effect as consistent activity when it is actually the same as no activity. In other words, if you're only reading a little bit of the Bible, it really isn't doing you very much good. The reality is that with a lack of consistent Bible engagement defined as at least four times a week, Christians have less confidence in sharing their faith with others and are more vulnerable to falling prey to false teachings, as well as a lethargy and apathy in consistently living out their faith in their circle of influence. The studies show that the best spiritually based predictor among 13 to 17 year old teenagers was their engagement in Scripture. Similarly, when examining children raised in church, a LifeWay research study found the biggest factor for predicting the spiritual health as young adults is whether they read the Bible regularly as kids. People wonder why do kids go from the church to college and they leave the faith. They probably were not reading their Bibles when they were kids. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible is the word of God. It has the supernatural power to change lives. And we are, according to Scripture, to grow up. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And we are to long for the spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk. 1 Peter 2.2 says, that we are to be like newborn infants, longing for pure spiritual milk, that by it we may grow up into salvation. Our big idea, again, is that the day of the Lord will come, and we need to be found diligent. We need to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. We need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. We need to not be carried away by error. We need to grow in grace and knowledge, and one of the best ways we can start doing that is to be in the Bible. The day of the Lord is coming. 
many things are happening in our world that without a grounding in Scripture may seem stressful or scary. When you're grounded in God's Word, you will have an increasing confidence in the truth of God's Word and an increasing sense of the real coming end of this age. If you ground yourself in God's Word, you will be more and more excited about what God is doing in and through His church. You will be more likely to evangelize your friends and neighbors. You will be better able to resist temptation. The day of the Lord will come. The heavens and the earth will be remade. And those found faithful will enjoy an eternity of blissful worship of God in the most amazing way. We truly cannot even imagine the wonders that await for the believer. And I'm going to close here with a longer section from Paul in 1 2 Corinthians. This is the benediction and final prayer. And then the worship team will come up and lead us as we take the offering. But may this be our prayer as we look forward to the day of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is a preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, 
knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commanding, commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that good? Now at this time we're going to take our offering and the worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song here. Um, we've, we've kind of in the last month or so been coming out of the mode where we were in COVID for a long time where we, a lot of people got used to giving online and putting it in the box back there, but we felt it was important to remind ourselves that giving is an act of worship, and so we're going to resume passing the plate.